Well, good morning. Can you think of any place you'd rather be after that? No way. No way. Praise God. That is awesome. Well, for those of y'all who are maybe joining us for the first time at Wayside this morning, or for those of y'all who've been out and about the last few weeks, this morning is part four in a six-part series on the life of David that we have titled, A Heart After God, David in the Psalms. And what we are doing is we are taking this larger-than-life figure, David, and we are looking at his life through six of the psalms that he has written, each kind of chronicling a different period of his life. And I can't speak for the rest of you, but I have really enjoyed this series. I have really enjoyed studying King David. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving around thinking about King David, like I'm sure many of you have been. And I was just thinking about how fascinating and compelling his life is. I mean, this guy's life is off the charts, isn't it? This is a guy who experienced some of the highest highs of anyone in Scripture. And this is a guy who experienced some of the lowest lows of anyone in Scripture. David knew all about what it was like to be on the mountaintop. And David knew all about what life was like in the valleys, without question. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those valleys. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at maybe the deepest valley of David's entire life. Maybe the lowest point of David's life. David sinned with Bathsheba. And the proceeding consequences of that sin were horrific, sad, And ultimately had devastating consequences for his family. But David's response to his sin, as recorded in Psalm 51, stands as one of the great passages in all scripture. And one of the great articulations of what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. And there are two questions I want us to think about this morning. As we work through the text, as we work through Psalm 51, there's two questions that I want kind of bouncing around your mind. And the first question is, what is your view of your sin? What is your view of your sin? And the second question that I want you thinking about is, what is your view of your Savior? What is your view of your Savior? The story of David and Bathsheba is found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and it begins with these fateful words. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Don't miss what the author makes pretty clear here. Spring is a time where kings go to battle. And what is David? He's a king. Where is David's army? It's in Rabbah. And where is David? David's in Jerusalem. The author here seems to be making a point, and the point is this. If David had been where David was supposed to be, then David would not have done what David was not supposed to do. If David had been where David was supposed to be, David would not have done what David was not supposed to do. And there's a real nugget of truth here for all of us. 
We often do what we shouldn't do because we are where we shouldn't be. In my experience, it is very rare to see someone commit a major moral failure that has not been preceded by minor moral concessions and minor moral failures along the way. David was supposed to be roaming the land with his army, and instead he's roaming the rooftop with his lust. And he is about to make a huge mistake. So there he is. He's up on the rooftop overlooking out on the city. It's elevated palace. He's looking out. It's late at night, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. He sees Bathsheba. And we have every reason to believe this is not a stranger. That David knew who Bathsheba was. She was the daughter of one of David's best fighters. She's the granddaughter of one of his most trusted counselors. And she's the wife of one of his inner circle of soldiers, his mighty men. This is betrayal, people. This is really, really bad. So David looks out there, he sees Bathsheba. Y'all know the story. Y'all have heard it probably a million times. He sees Bathsheba out there and he says, hey, why don't you bring her to me? They bring Bathsheba to the palace. She and David become intimate. It comes to pass that Bathsheba is pregnant and David presses the panic button. He says, I've got to cover up my sin. How am I going to cover up my sin? I'm going to call her husband Uriah home from the battlefield. And I'm going to get Uriah to go home and spend some quality time with his wife Bathsheba. And then, poof, it'll all be taken care of. But there's one major problem. There's one kink in the story. And that's the character of Uriah. Because Uriah the Hittite comes home. And David spends some time with him and says, hey, why don't you go hang out with your wife? And Uriah says, not going to do that. And he sleeps on the steps of the palace with the rest of David's servants. And he doesn't go home. He doesn't go home. So David says, okay, okay, plan B. I'm going to bring him in. I'm going to get him inebriated. Because I know that if I can get him drunk, inhibition, gone. Discipline, out the window. Then I'm going to send him home to his wife Bathsheba and we'll all live happily ever after. But even in his drunken stupor, Uriah says no. And he crashes out on the steps of the palace with the rest of David's servants. The contrast in character here between Uriah and David is absolutely startling. And it has to be, it had to be incredibly humiliating for David as he looked back on this. So Uriah still doesn't go be with Bathsheba, so David hits the nuclear option. And he gives Uriah some orders to take to the commander in the field. He basically gives Uriah a death sentence and has Uriah hand deliver it. And Uriah hand delivers it to the commander. It says to put him out there on the front lines, pull back, and then let what happens happen. And what happens is exactly what David wanted to happen. And Uriah is killed. David gives Bathsheba a little bit of time to mourn. And then he takes her in to be his wife. And everything is hunky-dory until chapter 12. 
And here comes the prophet Nathan. I don't know if he knocked on a door. That was for added <laughs> theatrics. And Nathan comes in. He says, hey, David, can I have a word with you? David's like, sure, boss. Go ahead. You're the prophet of God. Talk to me. And he says, I want to tell you a story. There was two guys. There's a rich man and a poor man. Rich man had all these animals, had all this wealth. Poor man had nothing but one little lamb. And you know what the rich man did, David? That rich man took the one lamb that that poor man owned and loved and cared for. He took it from him. And David's just turning beet red. He can't believe this. He's, got indig- he's indignant. He's got righteous anger flowing through his blood. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Oops is right. Nathan looks at David and says, David, you are the man. I bet you could have heard a pin drop after that, huh? In 2014, we call that dropping the mic. You notice they're laughing away over there, yeah. Drop the mic. Nathan's like, there you go, David. You are the man. I mean, he's a man after God's own heart, right? He's a man after God's own heart. That's what the name of this series is. That's what we're talking about. A man after God's own heart. Is David really the poster child for such a title? Man after God's own heart and a liar. Man after God's own heart and an adulterer. Man after God's own heart and a murderer. What in the world is going on? You know, if I ask people in here, hey, what was David's finest moment? Just give me his finest moment. I bet most of y'all or most people in here would say, Michael, David and Goliath, baby. One of the first stories I learned. Slingshot, stones, big time. That was awesome. And you know what? Incredible faith, incredible courage by brother David when he slayed Goliath. Some other people may say, you know what? No, 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 that's not the best. The best is when he gets anointed to be king and he's being chased by Saul and he is patiently waiting, patiently waiting on God's timing. Even when he has the opportunity to kill Saul, he says, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait on God's timing. And you know what? Fantastic faith and courage and integrity by David. But I think you could state a case that David's finest moment, David's greatest achievement, David's most lasting impression are the words that he pins in the aftermath of this tragic sequence of events that's found in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the true sinner's prayer. And my friend, we are all sinners. This prayer could be our prayer. This prayer should be our prayer. David wrote it, but it could have been you and it could have been me. So let's look at it. Let's go to Psalm 51. Anyone depressed yet? <laughs> Don't be. This is awesome stuff. This is awesome stuff. But David is going to remind us of two truths that we cannot forget. I mean, we cannot forget these truths. And that is the pain of our sin, but, that is the, but also the power of our Savior. The pain of our sin and the power of our Savior. All right, let's look at it. Psalm 51 basically breaks down into four parts, okay? And there are four different affirmations that David makes. In part one, David affirms that he is a sinner and that he needs forgiveness. He says, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. Part two, David affirms the true offensiveness of his sin. Part three, David affirms the power of God to forgive sin. And part four, David affirms the power of God to renew him to service even after his sin. So we have the need for forgiveness of sin, an honest depiction of the nature of sin, the fact that God can forgive and remove our sin, 
and the belief that God can restore us to service even after our sin. Verses 1 and 2 deal with the need for forgiveness. And here's what David writes. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David opens up with a plea to God for forgiveness according to God's loving kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed and refers to God's loyal and unfailing love. David asked for his transgressions to be blotted out, his iniquities washed, his sin cleansed. And listen, his only hope for this to take place is a hope purely based on the compassion and unfailing love of God. David knows that there's nothing he can do to make himself right with God. There's nothing he can do to fix this problem of sin. Salvation is always by grace through faith, on the basis of Jesus Christ's shed blood. Period. It is grace. And the thing about grace is it cannot be earned. It cannot be earned by living your life so good on the front end that you earn salvation. And it can't be lived where you live your life so good on the back end that you pay it back. Salvation is totally dependent upon the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God from beginning to end, period. And David knows this. You know, one of my heroes is a guy named William Carey, and he's the name of a well-known Baptist uh, missionary. He's often called the father of modern missions, and he was a missionary in India in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and he spent 41 years in India without a furlough. So he's a brother and he's a little bit crazy. And when Dr. Carey got sick, some guys came up to him and they said, hey, Dr. Carey, you're pretty sick. I don't know if you're going to survive. You know what happens when people die? We have a funeral. And in a funeral, we like to preach a message. And when we preach a message, we like to preach it over a biblical text. Is there a passage of scripture that you would like us to preach on at your funeral? And here's what Dr. Carey says. Oh, I feel that such a poor, sinful creature is unworthy to have anything said about him. But if a funeral sermon must be preached, let it be from these words. And he quotes Psalm 51, 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And if that wasn't enough, in the same spirit of humility, Carey wrote this as part of his will. He said, I want this on my gravestone and nothing else. Nothing else. And here's what Carey wrote. William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died blank. Because he's not dead yet. And here's the words that he said. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Wow. Now our culture may see this and say, oh, that is so sad. That is so sad that such a fine gentleman would have such a negative self-image. He must have not got enough participation ribbons when he was a kid playing YMCA. That resonates with the millennial group, I know. 
If only his self-esteem had been better, maybe Carrie would have been able to accomplish something in this life. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not into false humility. And God is not into self-hatred. But what God is into, what God does desire from his people, is an accurate view of our condition as sinners. And an accurate view of the incomprehensible grace that he offers to those who will turn to him. God desires that we know who we are, what we need, and who can give it. David is right. We are sinners. We need a Savior. And only God, according to his loving kindness, can accomplish that salvation. So, first affirmation. He is a sinner. He needs forgiveness. David's second affirmation, found in verses 3 through 6, deal with the awful nature of David's sin. Verse 3, he writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. I love David's words here. Notice, he does not minimize his sin, does he? He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't rationalize it. He doesn't say, hey, God, I know this was bad. I I know this was bad, but don't forget all the good I did. You remember Goliath? That was a big deal, God. Don't sleep on Goliath, God. That's a big deal. He doesn't do that. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't say, hey, God, it's really not my fault because you're sovereign. You're omnipotent. You made me look at her. You're the one who wired me this way. I'm just being a guy. Now, David doesn't say that. David doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't say, man, what about her? What was she doing out there? I mean, that's crazy. Why? It's not my fault. I was just up on the roof walking around. It's not my fault she was out there bathing. It's her fault. He doesn't do that. Nor does he play the comparison game that we love to play, don't we? He doesn't say, hey, God, I'm not going to lie. This was a bad deal. But you and I both know I'm no Saul. <laughs> just saying, God. You and I don't look. Uh-huh. He doesn't do that. David acknowledges that his sin is evil and God has every right to judge him. Period. End of discussion. Interestingly, in verse 4, David also writes, Against you, you only, I have sinned. It's kind of interesting, right? Because David's sin had massive repercussions. Uriah, he's dead. Bathsheba, She's stained. Their baby, dead. David's family, they're going to deal with this sin and the repercussions of the sin for the rest of his life. So how can David write that my sin is only against you, God? And the reason is because God is our creator. God is our judge and God is holy. And therefore, all sin is in direct opposition to him. It is rebellion against him. If there is no God, then there is no sin. But there is God. David knows that. And he knows that this sin 
is against his maker. This is why David writes in the second half of verse 4, You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. God had every right to judge David for his sin. And brothers and sisters, he has every right to judge us for our sin. Every right. And so what about us? What's our view of our sin? What's our view of our sin? Have we minimized the ugliness of our sin? Have we become callous to the truth that sin is awful? Have we forgotten that our sin is rebellion against our creator? You know, mature Christians are constantly aware of their sin. And they are sensitive to it. I think about Paul in the book of Romans chapter 7, the passage y'all probably know well, where he's wrestling with his sanctification. He's wrestling with living out his position of righteousness. Now he wants to practice righteousness. And he's wrestling with it. And this is the apostle Paul who wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. And listen to what he says at the end of the chapter. He describes himself, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? It's the Apostle Paul talking. Paul is keenly aware of his sin. This is not Paul struggling with a negative self-image. This is Paul articulating an accurate self-image. And an accurate self-image is one that has two truths that run right next to each other, like parallel train tracks. On one hand, we know that we are sinners and that we are unworthy of anything but judgment. And on the other hand, we know that we are so loved and so cared for and so valuable in the eyes of God that he took on flesh, took our place on the cross, and died for us. And those two truths are mandatory truths for us to understand as we live out our life. That's why Paul, the very next verse says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in 8.1, the next verse, he says, Now there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think, I think the key to an accurate and healthy self-image is to realize that we are nothing but worms. As Dr. Carey said, but incredibly valuable worms. Incredibly valuable worms. Not because of how good we are. Not because of how smart we are. Not because of how rich we are. Not because of how good we are. It's not what makes us valuable. We are valuable because we are created in the image of God. Made to be in relationship with God. Redeemed through the sacrifice of God. Set apart to be holy for the glory of God. And loved infinitely well by God. That's what gives us incredible value. Not what we do. But who he is. And what he can bestow upon us. David teaches us that an accurate view of sin is one that recognizes the ugliness of our sin and recognizes God's, God's total just right to judge our sin. And this is important when you share the gospel. When we are the church and we're out in the community and we are talking to people about King Jesus and we are sharing the gospel, it is incredibly important that they hear some bad news. 
Because there's no good news, there's no gospel if there's no bad news. They must understand that. Sin, death, separation, judgment, that's the bad news in verses 1 through 6. Fortunately, we're not done, are we? The darkness comes before the dawn, and here's the good news. Verses 7 through 12 show David affirming the power of God to forgive sin and to make us clean. And I want you to listen to the confidence in which David has that God can accomplish this. Listen to how David speaks. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. What an affirmation of the power of God to make us clean. Amen? Unbelievable. Purify me and I shall be clean. Not go be a good person to purify yourself. Purify me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be white as snow. God, create in me a clean heart. I tell you, sometimes I think we hear the gospel and people in church, we're the worst. We hear the gospel so much that we become numb to it. We become numb to its power, numb to its meaning, numb to its beauty. We become numb to the gospel. It reminds me of a, a weekend I spent in California about seven years ago. My best friend Kevin Bloomstrom's in here somewhere. And Kevin was getting married. And for his bachelor party, Kevin went to school in California. And his bachelor party, we got to stay in one of his college roommates' beach house. This isn't any old beach house, people. This is a $15 million beach house in Malibu. Okay? My neighbors that weekend were Halle Berry and Bruce Willis and Mike Loudermilk. Right there. Which one doesn't belong? Yeah. And I had my own room that weekend. Upstairs. Third floor. Back side of the room. All glass. Out overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I could have gone to the balcony, jumped off my balcony, and done a cannonball into the Pacific Ocean. I remember getting there. I remember thinking, this is as good as it gets. This is beautiful. This is the prettiest view I have ever seen. And I, that first morning, I think I sat out there, drank coffee, kicked back. I soaked it all in. Second morning, it was pretty. It was really pretty. And I think I maybe stepped out there. Can't remember for sure. But the third morning, I don't even think I opened the blinds. I think I just went downstairs and ate a bagel. <laughs> Three days was all it took for the luster to be lost. And how many of us, including myself, guilty as charged, let the very same thing happen when it comes to the gospel? Because if I understand this thing correctly... I am a sinner separated from God, a holy God, and unable to do anything about it. 
I am destined for destruction and God is completely just in his judgment. I'm without hope and I'm without a prayer. But in God's infinite love and infinite holiness, he willingly took on flesh and the person of Jesus Christ. Lived a perfect life, a sinless life. Did what I could not do. Willingly went to the cross, dying in my place, thus satisfying God's wrath, all the while redeeming us, setting us free from the power of sin, giving us new life here and eternal life in the age to come. And he did that as an ultimate display of his love, his righteousness, and his character for his eternal glory forever and ever so that we may praise him. Amen. That is not something to get numb about. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And how many of us here this morning need our joy restored? What about those of you out here this morning that don't know this joy I speak of? You don't know this Jesus I speak of. You don't know this grace that I'm talking about. This forgiveness that David is receiving. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've never heard this before, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the most powerful and important truth in the history of the world. It's a big deal. David knew about the reality of his sin and he knew about the grossness of sin. But ladies and gentlemen, David also knew about the greatness of his Savior. The greatness of his Savior. Finally, David finishes Psalm 51 by affirming God's power to renew him to service even after his sin. Verse 13, David writes, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He finishes by talking about the restoration of Jerusalem. By, by your favor, do good design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. The young bulls will be offered on your altar. You've got to love David here. He's like, God, I'm a sinner. I know it. You know it. And my sin is ugly. It's a bad deal. I know it and you know it. But God... I also know you love me, and I know you have the ability to make me clean. And not only that, God, you have the ability to restore me and put me back out there in the game. Unbelievable. He says, hey, people are going to be converted. It's going to be awesome. Come on, God, let's do this. You got to love David's attitude there. David had his issues. That is clear. David had his faults, no disputing that. But one thing that is undeniable is that David's heart belonged to God. David loved God. And that's why he is a man after God's own heart. And you know, I don't know, I don't know how many people are here this morning, but however many people that are here this morning, there's that many stories out there. 
And I don't know your story. You do, but I don't. But I know that there are people out here this morning who really regret some decisions they've made in life. They really regret them. And I know there's people out here who have made decisions and had moral failures in their life that have been catastrophic for them and for those close to them. And the typical response of somebody who experiences one of those catastrophic failures is to give up on life, give up on God, and give up on the idea of ever being used again by God. But that is just not true. Maybe the best known example of a restoration of service is found in the Gospels by a man named Peter. A man who walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus, prayed with Jesus, was a miracle to the witness, was a witness to the miracles of Jesus, was a participant in the miracles of Jesus. And yet, denies three times that he even knows Jesus when pushed by a middle school girl. And how does Jesus respond to Peter? Does he tell Peter, hey, I'm through with you, Peter. I'm done with you. You had a position of prestige in my inner circle and you failed. Get away from me. Nope. Does he say, Peter, hey, you blew it, brother. I may let you hang out with me there way in the back, but you're never getting near me again. Is that how he handled Peter? Nope. If I recall, the resurrected Jesus is standing there on the shore, and Peter sees him, and Peter hops out of there and goes Michael Phelps freestyle, gets to the beach, and Jesus has a little conversation with him. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. Yes, I love you. He says, then feed my lambs. And he doesn't stop there. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, yes, I love you. Three times. He says, then feed my sheep, Peter. Restoration. Peter's heart was broken, and as David told us, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jesus doesn't throw Peter into the spiritual junkyard where he could possibly be used for spare parts, but rather refurbishes him, restores him, and makes him more valuable than ever. Brothers and sisters, remember that the God who is powerful enough to remove our sin is also powerful enough to restore us to service even after our sin for his name's sake and for his glory. Look, sin has its consequences, doesn't it? There's no disputing that. Sin is awful. It is devastating, it is destructive, it wrecks lives, it is awful. There's no getting around it. David paid dearly for his sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 12 makes that clear. There were real consequences for David's actions. But David's sin, like our sin, was not too big for God to remove. 
and it was not too big to disqualify him from being used once more. David was forgiven, David was restored, and David was sent back out once more. At the beginning of the message this morning, I asked you two questions. And the two questions were, what is your view of your sin? And what is your view of your Savior? What is your view of your sin? And what is your view of your Savior? And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that David is called a man after God's own heart is because of how he answered these two questions. As to sin, David's view was that it is present, it is ugly, and it is needing forgiveness that can only come by the grace of God. That's his view. What's ours? As to his Savior, David's view is that he is loving, he is holy, he is willing, and he is able to not only forgive us our sin, but to restore us to fellowship and restore us to service for his glory. That was David's understanding of his Savior. What's yours? Do you know this Savior? Do you know this forgiveness? Do you know this grace? This unmerited favor from God that cannot be earned, but that can only be received based on faith in the blood of Jesus Christ who took our place. Do you know this grace? Whether you are a Christian who has walked with God for years or a pre-Christian in whom that Holy Spirit is stirring right now in your belly this very second. Remember these truths and remember the cry of David as he looked up to God in the midst of his brokenness and said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Knowing that a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Let's pray. God, like David, I need you because I am a sinner. And apart from you, I have no hope and no chance of being made right. Your word says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there's no one righteous, no, not one. And God, I know my sin is awful. And you have every right to judge it because, God, you are so holy. And we love your holiness. And we love the fact that we serve a righteous God. And because of that, you can judge my sin accordingly. But, God, I also know that you love me. And that you, God, have the power to make me clean. You have the power to remove my sin according to your loving kindness through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who in him there was no sin. But he took on sin on our behalf so that in him we might have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And God, not only do you have the power to save me, you have the power to restore me to service. 
You have the power to change my habits, my desires, my words, my actions, my purpose, my future. God, you have the power to save me for all eternity, and you have the power to change me right now. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's never received this gift of forgiveness, this gift of grace, this gift of eternal life, which you freely give through the blood of Christ to those who will turn to you in faith and say, yes, Lord, yes, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins, and I believe that in you is life and eternal life. I pray they would receive that. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this time to come together and praise you and tell you that we love you and tell you that we are so thankful for what you did on our behalf. Jesus, you changed eternity because you changed each one of us. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.